Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about how we talk to people who are different from us and how understanding the things that we and others hold sacred might help us do that better. In this episode, I talk to Dawn Foster. Dawn is a British journalist, she's a broadcaster and she writes a column in The Guardian newspaper. She's written on housing, on inequality, on austerity and on British politics more generally also contributes to the London Review of Books, the TLS and the Independent. We spoke about her childhood growing up in poverty, how the new atheists prompted her to deepen her Catholic faith, anger in political discourse and the Me Too movement. I hope you enjoy listening to it. And thank you so much for coming in to talk to me today. I want to ask you, what are your sacred values? What do the what are the things or the thing that you hold sacred that is kind of fundamentally defining in your life? That if someone tried to make you give it up, you would resist that very strongly. Probably two things. Probably the well, the interlinked. So probably the first is charity, and I mean that in not just a kind of traditional sense of kind of formalised charity, formalised giving, etc., but being charitable with each other. And I suppose tied in with that is empathy. So a lot of my work, a lot of the things I kind of believe personally and do personally, are all about trying to understand other people better, trying to bring about equality, trying to address inequalities and injustices. And I think you can only really do that if you come at it from a charitable perspective, uh, seeing other people kind of exactly as you'd like to be seen, but also having empathy with them. So not just seeing a homeless person in the street, giving some money to them or shelter or crisis or another charity and still feeling that they are quite wretched and that, you know, you are doing it to assuage your own guilt or to make yourself feel better. It's more about um, trying to fully understand people, how they get to those positions. I'd love to try and unpack kind of how those came, came to be formative values for you. So tell me a bit about the religious or spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood. What was in the air mm. uh, when young Dawn was growing up? I mean, I like to think that no matter what my background, it would have been, um, I would have ended up the same, but I think that's not remotely true. And I think everybody has to accept that. Um, I grew up in a very, very poor household, um, a family that, you know, never had any work when I lived with them. And I think realizing exactly how, um, how poverty affects you emotionally and psychologically and exactly how many people are trapped by it and the fact that you can, you know, in modern Britain, you can try extremely hard to get out of it, but there are lots and lots of structures that stop you. So I knew lots and lots of people who really, really wanted to work. They hated being on benefits. And of course, every time they went for a job, they were up against people who currently had jobs or had worked recently. And I was able to see that the longer you were out of work, the longer you were trapped in poverty, the more it affected you psychologically. But also, you know, there, there isn't a lot of work in lots of places in Britain. Uh, we're in London now where there is a lot of work. So most of my friends after university came here because that was where the work was. Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up uh, in South Wales. So mostly um, I was in Northern Ireland for a bit, came over. So I grew up in Newport in South Wales, which is a now it's post-industrial. Um, at the time, it was a steel town. So there was a big steel works. And when I was at school, everybody 
somebody whose whose family did have work either you know their fathers worked in the steelworks their mum worked in Woolworths and the steelworks closed when I was still at school and I remember just realizing exactly how easily that could happen how quickly um, the character of the place changed and lots and lots of people were completely out of work they had a job for life it you know paid really really well and it was a trade for them and then the only industries that kind of moved in were call centers I worked in one for a while and they were outsourced um, all of them to uh, Mumbai I think and you know I saw over and over again like different waves of work coming in different waves of work leaving and was there a religious or spiritual or non-religious mm. element in the in the childhood yeah I think so definitely I mean I think it was mainly the poverty that kind of led me to this work but obviously um, I probably more religious now than I was as a kid I think that a lot of people feel that in in, in, as an adult, you have more choice in um, how spiritual you are, how, what form it takes, etc. And um, I always kind of, you know, held Christian values, thought that they were, um, you know, very, very dear to me. But I also grew up in a very, very multicultural area. So a lot of my friends were Muslim, a lot of them were Hindu. I think I looked at the census uh, when I was at university and realised that there were two Jewish people in Newport and that was it. So that's why I never met any Jewish people, which is why I always wondered. You know, I had lots of friends who were from different faiths and we found that um, for the most part, most of our values were very, very similar. And I guess I didn't really think too much about religion as a kind of key part of my life. It was just kind of background noise, just something you did um, until I was... Your parents were Catholic? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think I might be the only sibling who's actually properly religious now, but <laughs> I'll check that later. But um, And it was only when I got to university and kind of came across new atheists that I started getting more involved, thinking more deeply about it. Um and, and I think that's partly but just because um, the kind of way they argued was, you know, really, really odd and really combative. And I think I spoke to you know a lot of my friends now who are spiritual but didn't used to be, um, all say that actually it was new atheism that tipped them back. So, yeah. <laughs> no, precisely. Um, no, I do find it really interesting how, you know, I was at university. Um, I wasn't part of any of the Christian societies, partly because they, they seemed very, very traditionalist. They seemed very, very right wing. I was very, very left wing. Um, I didn't feel like I fitted into them, but, um, you know, I was relatively, uh, happy to go to the local church, etc. Um, but yeah, it was atheism that started me thinking a lot more about spirituality. And I think it was the very masculine, very combative and, um, uh, element to it, but also the fact that there was no room for empathy within new atheism. And it seemed really, really counter to, um, you know, Christianity, to modern Britain, to anything approaching equality in terms of gender, race, sexuality, etc. But also, I mean, the big thing that really annoyed me about new atheism and made me start thinking more about religion was the fact that there didn't seem to be any kind of intellectual um, inquiry into why people believed and how. It was, you know, I think they honestly thought that the way to stop people from being religious was just to tell them it was stupid. It wasn't to investigate why anybody had belief, why people uh, had different levels of spirituality. It was simply just to, you know, turn around and say this is a fact, and therefore, it's, and therefore, you shouldn't believe without wondering how people come to that, whether faith is fact based or whether it's deeper, and exactly why so many people hold those views. Do you feel? Uh, as someone who is publicly Catholic in the public eye, that uh, that moment has passed, or do you receive? I mean, it feels like you receive abuse for everything. <laughs> you, you know, laying them out. Do you receive uh, abuse for being Catholic? How, how's that experience for you? I don't think. I mean, Liz Brunig was talking about. Uh, no, actually, it was Nicole Cliff was talking about how she didn't feel she'd had much abuse in America. It's a very, it's still a very Christian country, and I think that. 
the abuse I get for being Catholic is much less than the abuse I get for gender or politics. And I think it's much easier to weather. I think that it doesn't affect me as much. It, you know, it's generally in the new atheist vein. Um, it's generally kind of, uh, not aimed directly at me, but about me. And I might happen upon it. I might not. But I think for the most part, people are a lot more respectful. A lot of people are very, very interested. So a lot of my friends read a lot of theology, even if they are agnostic. Um, and a lot of them are getting back into it. And I think that people have more questions than they do, um, kind of condemnations. So, you know, I don't, I don't feel I've had a huge amount of abuse for it. Um, Obviously, some people try and start fights online. I generally just extricate myself. And how is being at The Guardian, which is certainly seen as a kind of bastion of, of secularism? Um, it's fine. Um, I, I've got some colleagues who are religious, but also some colleagues who are agnostic, but very, very into religion. You know, we still got a religion editor. We, um, Andrew Brown's a good friend of mine. He writes leader, you know, leaders and editorials. And, um, he's got a very, very long background reporting on religion. So there's a lot of people there who are very interested in theology, who are very, very interested in religion. Um, and obviously a lot of the things we cover involve religion. So Grenfell Tower, it was not the government who managed to help people, but different faith groups. So we had to do a lot on exactly how they've stepped in and looking at how people's faith kind of helped them to recover afterwards and exactly how we'd gotten to a point where the government should have been able to come in, should have been able to give these services. And it fell to faith groups, it fell to churches and mosques. And if they weren't there, what would have stepped in? One of the things this podcast is interested in is how we communicate across difference. And there's the the major divide perhaps across belief and non-belief, but there's also within communities, and I'm sure we'll come to uh, feminism and other communities, uh, it feels like we're at quite a fractious moment. But historically, the thing people think of when they think about religious conflict often is, at least in these islands, a Catholic-Protestant conflict. Where do you feel like we're at with that? Um, I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's gotten to a point where it's, for me and most of my friends now, it's just become a big joke. I have a lot of Protestant friends. We spend a lot of time joking about schisms and Martin Luther. I think it's definitely a lot better. I think obviously there are still some conflicts there, but I think it has gotten a lot better. I think that um, most people accept that people fall into one of two camps. Obviously, some people do convert, but um, I think it's gotten much, much better. I think there's a a greater public understanding of it. Um, I mean, one thing I find quite interesting, I was looking at some kind of statistics on the number of people who call themselves religious now. And, um, you know, I read Andrew Brown's book about, uh, about Anglican, yeah, um, called That Was the Church That Was. So it's all about emptying pews, etc. So I had a look at some statistics afterwards and uh, it was really strange to see that actually if you look at the under 35s, there are now more Catholics than Protestants. It's only when you look at older groups. Um, so I do find it interesting. I've got a few Protestant friends who are thinking of converting to Catholicism um, and obviously I'm encouraging them. <laughs> I can imagine you're quite persuasive. Yeah. But I think I think if we've gotten to the point where we can joke about kind of um, blowing, blowing each other up in Parliament or Martin Luther or um, Oliver Cromwell endlessly <laughs> and it does mean we're in a much better position like I can't imagine you know Justin Welby coming out to, to lamp me if I walk past his church but there we go <laughs> which is perhaps one of the good good news stories about people communicating across difference in a landscape that can be quite discouraging is your sense that the general perception that we're, we are getting more tribal do you think it's justified? I think so yes definitely I think um, there's a 
a lot of polarization. I think we're in a really, really unstable position at the moment, um, politically and socially. And that always causes people to try and find places that they identify. Um, and that could be religion, that could be gender, that can be geography. Obviously, that's a huge issue with Brexit now. People identifying very, very closely with their local area because it's often attacked for being on one side of the divide or another. Um, and also, you know, um, I think that with the Me Too movement, uh, women feel a lot more empowered to actually speak out about things. But at the same time, we see the old guard closing off. Um, and also, I mean, we had a, I feel like we had a period probably when I was, um, at university from 2006, 2010, up until about maybe 2015, where politics was getting a lot more pluralist. There were lots more, um, you know, smaller parties like the Greens and the Dems, remember them? And, uh, UKIP and lots of other parties gaining a big foothold. And now after the 2017 election, after Brexit, we saw um, the two-party system come back into the fore. And I think a lot of that comes from the instability uh, and the fact that we have a system that means that first past the post works. The only way you can get Tories out is to bring Labour in. So, But I do think it kind of fosters a lot more division. It fosters a lot more unhappiness amongst people. It makes politics a lot more fractious. And people feel there's a lot more at stake. And, and that's why you know, people end up lashing out, people end up fighting. Um, I mean, political journalism is great fun at the moment because everybody on the left is either pro or anti-Corbyn and added to that, you've got the conservative and Labour divide. So it feels as if the political moment is a lot more fractious. It's a lot more combative. There's a lot more conflict in it. Uh, let's come on to uh, Me Too and the gender uh, question, not least because it's 100 years today since uh, women, or at least some segment of the female population, were enfranchised um, as we're recording today. And you've um, spoken quite a lot about gender. I have been kind of fascinated and disturbed by some of the reaction to the Me Too movement. And I have thought a lot about it, about what is it um, about women talking openly about their experiences that feels so threatening to um to really quite large numbers of men, many of whom are very decent, who are not, um, you know, sexual predators themselves, but feel perhaps, you know, this has gone too far or are very destabilised mm. by it. Um, are you hopeful that it is just uh, an initial reaction and will settle? Or do you think that uh, things are looking a bit more worrying? I think that any kind of movement that aims to force through any form of change comes up against a backlash. And I think that with the Me Too movement, it's very... The way that it's structured means anybody who does speak out immediately brings themselves in for suspicion. And so most people who have spoken out and tried to say that there isn't an issue, that it's gone too far, etc., is rightly kind of cut down, both on the right and on the left. Um, I think some of that, you know, from people who otherwise seem very decent is a worry that at some point you have wronged somebody and not wanting to accept that rather than speaking to them and trying to work out what about your behaviour could have been problematic. Um I've spoken to, you know, several kind of older, you know, political journalists and MPs, etc., who were complaining about it and asking why it had gone so far. And every time I said to them, are you worried about anything in your past? They said, no, not at all. I haven't ever raped anybody. Um, but what if this thing I did to somebody, uh, was taken the wrong way? And I just pointed out, well, this is an issue. Like you need to, you know, Me Too isn't just about stopping, you know, the very, very, um, you know, the, the kind of criminal behavior, but it's also about how we interact with women, how we end up in a situation where these things occur, because it doesn't just happen, you know, it isn't, it isn't black and white. It does happen on a spectrum. And the only way that you can get to a position where sexual violence is widespread is if you have a position where most people think they can get away with it on one end of the spectrum, which leads to the other. Um, 
and just trying to get people to understand that it's a big conversation and it's a conversation not just about trying to bring people to justice but also about how we change the codes and how we uh, change the rules for interaction with each other and just be a lot more mindful about how men and women interact about what is at stake about power about how relations both in you know friendship work and romantically um, all interact and exactly how you can kind of um, think more deeply about how to put the other person uh, at the heart of your behavior rather than just thinking about you know your own kind of desires and and what and you know moves I'd love to hear what you think about anger in our public conversations and in some of these debates, because I'm really conflicted about it. I um, have been reading Martha Nussbaum on anger, who's quite sceptical about the usefulness of anger in the long term. And I certainly see that when I'm attacked for my gender or my beliefs, if I respond angrily, everything escalates. Whereas if I manage to keep my cool, uh, we can have a much more productive conversation. I'm very influenced by the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and his kind of internal uh, discipline really over emotion. But I also have great sympathy with the argument that we're always asking the oppressed not to get angry with the oppressor in order to be able to have a seat at the table and some of the injustice of that. And I hear that from the Black Lives Matter movement and others. Um, You seem to be someone who is pretty forceful in your views, but I haven't often seen you completely lose your rag. You tend to seem reasonably stable emotionally. So how how is that your thinking developed around that? Um, I mean, I I think I'm on the same page as you in that I... I don't see, I think that if you're trying to have a productive conversation with somebody, if you want to change somebody's mind, then anger isn't going to help. And so often if I'm angry, I won't have an argument with somebody. A lot of my friends do have arguments on Twitter. I always just kind of mute and move on, if, especially if someone's trying to go with me. And um, so I don't see it as really, really productive if you're having a political conversation with somebody and you want to bring them to your position. It won't happen if you're angry. It will only happen if you kind of consider their view, look at it from their perspective and then say, well, here's why I think this. Um, but I do think that when it comes to politics more widely, I don't think that I don't think that anger that comes from a specific place where it's anger injustice is necessarily wrong. I mean, um, Herbert McKay wrote about this and I can't remember the quote off the top of my head. Um, I think there are different types of anger and some anger is about jealousy. Some anger is about wanting to lash out and hurt somebody purely to suit your own ends. But some of it is anger at injustice. Some of it is anger at treatment. Um, some of it is anger at uh, not being listened to. And I think that's justified. And I mean, especially um, when I meet a lot of people who have been subject to government cuts, uh, they're very, very angry. And um, often it's the anger that in the end forces them to take political action. It forces them to go sit in the council chamber and refuse to leave. It forces them to set up a group. Um, a lot of people after Grenfell Tower were extraordinarily angry, both that, you know, the victims from for what they went through, how many people they lost, and their treatment afterwards. But also, a lot of people in the wider public were angry that we that we had kind of created a society where this was able to happen. And um, so, I think that I think that there are very very different types of anger. I think there are some that you know most people accept is you know uh, aren't productive, aren't helpful. Um, probably you know you should feel a certain degree of shame about them and try to diminish it. I think that trying to have a conversation with somebody, anger isn't very, very helpful. Equally, I understand political anger, understand anger injustice, and think that that is, you know, a very, very good driving force for many people, if it's properly controlled, if it's properly directed. I wonder if there's a gender um, 
element in this. I remember having a conversation with a couple of friends, two political theologians who I uh, know and respect very well. One male writes a lot about community organising and community organising's um, openness really to anger as a productive tool, as harnessing the anger against injustice of a community and not feeling the need to kind of... um, clamp that down and then a female political theologian talking about how whether for kind of you know biological or socialized reasons anger being uh, at least classically a less feminine or less female mode of engagement and actually very angry political spaces being quite exclusionary for women um does that ring true for you I think, again, there are different types of anger. I think that uh, there's a very, very combative, aggressive type that um, is often directed at individuals. And that is, that, that's never been a traditionally feminist, uh, feminine thing. It's often used to intimidate women, etc. So, um, but at the same time, a lot of the women I meet are extraordinarily angry because they have been, uh, at the sharp edge of injustice, at the sharp end of poverty. And, you know, the Focus E15 mothers, they were extraordinarily angry every time they went to protest. And it was that anger that drove them. Um, but it's a very, very co- collective anger and it's an anger at treatment rather than an anger at, you know, force at an individual. So I think often, um, you know, sometimes at work, you end up sitting next to somebody on TV to argue with somebody who thinks very differently to you and they will get very angry. And I always try and remain incredibly calm because it makes them more angry. And also, I think that most people listen less to an argument if somebody uh, exhibits that kind of aggressive anger. I think that if your argument is solid and you're and you're convinced of it, then you can make that argument without um, anger. But when it comes to kind of group protesting, I think that that anger uh, drives organising. It reminds people why they're doing it. It allows them to um, call for things. It allows them to clamour for greater justice, etc. So again, I think it's some very, very different things. We're going to take a quick break to have a catch up with the Theos team. I am here in the office with the lovely Amy Plender, who has been at Theos as a research associate for about six months, coming up to your six month anniversary, which we will have to celebrate. Amy is doing a project on the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, it was well covered at the time from pretty much the first start of the start of the fire. One of the first calls to the emergency service services was a uh, from Muslim residents who were up to observe their Ramadan fast. It was Ramadan at the time. Um, so faith groups have been part of the Grenfell story, or the tower, the, the, the fire story from right from the beginning. There are various residents, um, who Muslim residents who are up to break their fast, who woke up the other residents in the tower and would have saved many lives, which wouldn't have been saved had they all been asleep. And then from the moment of the emergency services being on the ground, the Salvation Army were there handing out tea and coffee and offering a safe space to talk. Um, and so right from the beginning, the, the faith groups, the local churches, the mosques have been um, supporting the local community uh, and have been being have been being turned to. So the research is looking at that response, trying to understand exactly what happened and why. I think the fire really gripped the hearts and minds of the nation, people were horrified, rightly. Um, There was an enormous outpouring of um, love and condolence from people who had never heard of um, the Latimer West estate or the tower in particular. 
it's a heartbreaking story. But within that, there has been an extraordinary amount of goodness of people throughout all the mistakes that have been made. People have been showing great strength and fortitude and love. And the faith groups in particular uh, have really been providing a safe space for the members of the local community. And we wanted to see how they were able to do that. What was it about the churches that would mean that residents who had left their homes in the middle of the night just guessed or they knew that the church, they assumed that the church would be open and they went there? Why did people turn up at their mosque and they hadn't heard anything. Um, they didn't know that they were doing anything, but they just assumed that their imam would be there to help and would be able to tell them what to do. And we wanted to learn from that and to see how we can best resource and equip um, similar faith communities to be developing those relationships and um, rooting themselves in their local communities so we can best know how to next serve our communities next time there is another disaster. And you're very early days in this research, but do you have um, some working hypotheses about why it seems like the faith group response was often more effective than, say, the statutory agencies at connecting with people, at communicating, at drawing on networks? Um, yes, but it is early days. But for so far, a lot of it comes down to relational capital, to relationships. Um, the fact that uh, various vicars had been in their parishes for upwards of 10 years. They'd been there every week, week in, week out. They lived on the, uh, on the estate. They'd been known uh, to their local communities that they had... Um, uh, a name and a face and people would knew where they where they lived um they would see their local imam every week on a friday um and would trust in their character and in their ability to um communicate quickly as simple as having people's phone numbers and being able to send a text and say we're handing out food and water we need more water um it's as simple as having having numbers and knowing each other You have been uh, on, as we've talked about in, in television studios and in other places on the political kind of sharp edge of campaigning. How easy do you find it in practice to uh, seek to empathise and understand with, say, political conservatives um, who you're engaging with? Initially, I found it a lot harder. Um some of them just don't want to talk to you. Some of them, uh, especially if you're a woman. So if you're left wing and you're a woman, then <laughs> there's almost no... A lot of political conservatives will often see people purely on their use value, and so I, I'm not of any use to them. Others, I think, do care deeply about how they come across, and with a lot of the austerity um, programme, with a lot of the things that have happened in Britain recently, they're becoming very, very worried about the fact they are seen as a nasty party, given that the woman who coined that is now the head of them. And so a lot of them are very concerned about how they appear. And whenever I end up speaking to conservatives and say, why have you chosen this route, given that it, for instance, cuts money to working families, it you know, cuts money to people in wheelchairs who will have their motability taken away, um, they always seek to try and explain their their rationale. And I think talking to people and asking them how they've come to a different conclusion to you is actually very, very helpful rather than just saying, I, I, I think you're evil. I think that you have no morals. I find it very helpful to try and ask them how they've gotten to that point. And generally speaking, it's um, 
they come from a, a different uh, perspective to me. They think they're empathising with people and being charitable by allowing people to make their own way through the world, um, but with very little thought given to what happens when people fall through that safety net or why the safety net should even be there. It's making me think of... Uh, another uh, political Catholic uh, just down the road from here, Philip Booth, who's at the, well, was at the IEA, um, who is an expert on Catholic social teaching and comes, draws uh, from that teaching a much more uh, libertarian approach to um, the makeup of the state, essentially. So he wants a bigger role for civil society, a smaller role um, for the state. How have you, or have you, there's no reason that you necessarily have to have, uh, drawn on your theological convictions in your um, political approach? I mean, I think a lot of it is about the fact that for me, nobody should be left behind. People are. And we have a duty to help everybody and to um, be as selfless as possible. And I think that it isn't charitable to just tell somebody to make their own way in the world and to withdraw state support. I think if we can build a world where everybody can get the help they need, everybody can have a decent life, then you should do so. And I think that if you look at capitalism, um, a kind of Catholic view, but there are lots and lots of different Catholic views of capitalism. Um, but the one I've arrived to, uh, through reading theology, reading scripture, etc., is that there is no reason why, given all the resources we have, we should have any form of suffering. And so it should be any kind of, you know, good Catholics, uh, mission to try and end it insofar as you can in your local community, in your wider community, um, any way you can. So, Obviously, some of that is helping people individually on a personal level, um, you know, local charities, uh, anybody you know who needs, needs help could be friends, could be family, could be complete strangers. But equally looking at the fact that in the longer term, certain policy changes, certain political changes will enable a lot more people to, um, escape poverty, to not be in a position where they're sleeping on the streets when it's snowing outside, um, to try and stop disasters, famine, war, et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the media. My perception, and I was talking to Jonathan Derbyshire, who's the comment editor of the Financial Times about this recently. My perception is that we we are seeing a move towards more polarisation in, in the voices that we see more generally, but in the mainstream media as well. Um, and I think probably part of that is changes in the business model and need for uh, online advertising revenues and things like that. Um, how do you, uh, as a columnist, one of the people who is uh, perhaps most pressurised to be very we always uh, the BBC always use the word clear in your argument, but perhaps extreme in 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 some some forms in your argument. How do you carry that um, moral responsibility about the, the views that you're putting out in the world? I think I always think about why I'm deciding to write something. I get lots and lots of people contact me, far more people than I could ever kind of pick up entirely with stories that they want to be told, etc. So a lot of what I do is trying to look at what stories aren't being told, um, look at and think about kind of what purpose it will serve. So I could write a story tomorrow about whether or not Theresa May is losing her grip on power. Will that change anything? Probably not. Could I write instead about uh, domestic violence in older people? Yes. Um, and I know that doing so will tell some people's stories, but equally it will draw attention to something that is overlooked quite a lot. And um, I've had some stories where uh, people have reached out to the case studies that I mentioned, were able to help them with their situation. But equally, I know sometimes that, uh, without being arrogant, it's just, uh, if I write about a story often enough and other people become aware of it, lots of people start recognizing it as an issue. And you can sometimes force policy change that way, or other people can step in and try and help solve the problem. So I think a lot of it is about thinking about 
what the outcomes of my writing it uh, is, what the outcomes of the things I focus on are, rather than just doing something purely for um, kind of ego or because you think that I don't know. I, th- I think I think there's a certain cachet that comes with uh, writing about. Um, very, very you know, low-level Westminster gossip and power struggles, and I think that a lot of people, went, you know, as writers, their aim is to be seen as clever, to be seen as smart, uh, you know, to kind of get the attention of a certain you know uh, cabal of people. When it comes to social affairs journalism, I think it serves a huge purpose in really, really amplifying voices and looking at things that uh, a lot of people massively overlook. Do you feel the need to? Um... I'm drawing on my experience here working on uh, magazine programmes on radio and trying to put together panels and and really the the form was that you would try and get the most extreme form of the argument. Do you sometimes feel like you have to overstate, you have to say something more strongly than you naturally would in order to get people reading it? Occasionally I've been asked to and I always say no. And I think generally I've been very, very lucky and I've had very, very good editors and um, I haven't felt pressured to do that i haven't felt pressured to uh change that i mean i wrote for one magazine once they changed some things without telling me and the first you know what wh- when it went online i didn't i didn't look at it but i had to my editors emailed me and say they were really surprised at two paragraphs in it went back had a look realized i hadn't written them at all so never wrote for those people again um but it also taught me that uh, a lot of people do have a very, very clear idea of where my kind of moral boundaries lie and are surprised when I step outside that. So when, uh, you know, occasionally editors or producers do push you to be a bit more extreme, I've always found that I've been very lucky. People have just been fine with me to say no and that it would be out of character um, and they might need somebody else if they really, really want that viewpoint. And have you ever written about something that you look back and think, I've changed my mind about that or I'm not as sure as I was? I'm racking my brains to try and think about uh, what I've written in the past now. One of the things, the reason I ask is that I am interested in the idea of how we hold up people in public life as these kind of unchanging, immutable opinion spewers who are not allowed to change their mind on things, not allowed to uh, often indicate doubt or um, uh, or be forgiven for things in the past. If you've had an opinion once or you've tweeted something once, then that that is it. That is what you are held up against and you are forever condemned. So uh, I imagine it's quite a pressurised position to be in. My views on euthanasia have changed a bit. I, um, maybe when I was about a lot younger, I read a lot on it and I spoke to two people who really, really wanted to end their life. They were not remotely very well. They were going through the courts and they felt it was a huge issue. And I didn't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to. Um, I thought that in that they had no standard of life and they felt they had no standard of life. Um, they wanted to have some control and to have a good death. I guess over the years, I spoke to a lot more disabled people and also saw the kind of sea change of the way that the state dealt with people with disability and realised a lot of people worried, um, you know, a lot of people with disabilities worried that this would set a precedent that could really, really harm them. But equally, it sent a message that a disabled life is less of less value than um, an able-bodied life. So probably that. It's interesting that you bring that up because we've recently released a report on um, the ro- the role of the term and the understanding of the concept of dignity in the assisted dying debates. Um, really raising some concern that in in this word being consistently used by you know um, 
assisted dying campaigners who often have very good motives seeking to end suffering, uh, there is a risk there that we are slightly changing the meaning of what we mean by dignity, um, conflating it with with that independence, with that freedom of choice um, in terms of a kind of, if, if my sacred value would be about, about human dignity applying to all lives and not being reliant on our use in society, on our, on our independence, but that dependent lives where we need each other, where we're in community, where we care for each other. Um, even when we're incontinent and we're in pain, can still be very, very dignified lives. And in um, and the particular PR exercise that's going on for very good reasons, there's some danger. Um, I find it very difficult to talk about those issues because they're so personal to people. Because you know, if you've if you've if you've looked after a dying relative, that will have strong resonance for you. And I and I feel that's true of a lot of the issues that we clash on in public. That we pretend they are these rational kind of philosophy seminar debating society issues. They're difficult to talk about because they they raise emotions in us and we are battling that and pretending that we don't have them. Uh, I'm interested in what a more emotionally intelligent public debate around that would look like when we acknowledge others' emotion, when we have almost empathy for others' emotion, even if we don't agree with their position. Do you have any hope that that might be possible and what might help? Um, I think that... I think it could do. I think one of the big issues is that the way the parliamentary system is set up is very, very antiquated and very, very combative. So, you, you know, you sit facing each other, you use these stupid terms, you have to go through the head of the house and it's set up purely, uh, it's not set up for a proper debate. It's not set up for a proper conversation. It's just a to and fro, mostly with insults being held. I think Prime Minister's questions is absolutely appalling. I think that I would much rather see it taken, maybe taken out of the chamber and treated much more like a kind of public inquiry where somebody sits down, answers questions very, very truthfully, rather than just kind of, rather than have political journalists scoring it on who won. I think it would be much more helpful if we were able to ask uh, Theresa May questions about, say, Brexit and the customs union and have her answer them in a, in, in a, in a more formalised way than a very antiquated way. And occasionally when I do see um, debates in Parliament, um, I think uh, there's a lot more understanding when MPs are able to speak and speak, uh, speak at length, give long talks about what's going on in their constituency, why they're unhappy, what reports they've been doing. A lot of the, um, all party parliamentary groups and the, uh, working groups do some really, really interesting research that doesn't really come close to the chamber. And I mean, there was one recently with, um, where Frank Fields had been working on, uh, food poverty and a conservative MP, I think it's Heidi Alexander, you know, she ended up crying in parliament. I think that if we have more discussions where people are able to come in, talk at length about things, but also bring in their own personal perspective, there's more opportunity to change. I mean, Heidi Alexander has, I know, I think it might be Heidi Allen. It's, it's a conservative Heidi anyway. Um, <laughs> she, she's obviously voted for cuts a lot of the time. So if, you know, the work she's done with Frank Field, seeing, uh, food poverty close up, seeing exactly how it works rather than just hearing some statistics, some stats, if that's changed her mind, then that's, brilliant and that's to be commended and so I think that I think that acknowledging that you have uh, a personal investment when it comes to talking is very very important but I don't think that we should at the same time prioritize kind of rational thought because nobody comes to a uh, decision or nobody uh, develops any thought without also being an individual, being in their body, being in a community that helps shape that. And I think that if you accept that, look at it closely and accept that it can 
hinder but also help uh, how we come to our decisions and how we how we come to the beliefs that we hold then I think that can only really help. Finally I want to ask you about the kind of digital space you spend quite a lot of time on Twitter and uh, we connected on Twitter as a wonderful facilitating um, role in that but uh, it is also a place where lots of women receive a lot of abuse I know I know you do and and, and other groups as well. Uh, are you an optimist or pessimist about the the potential for the digital space to facilitate healthy public conversations? I think that the digital space changes a lot. So uh, when I it was in my first year at university, I got really excited by this new website called Facebook. And now I just don't go on it at all. Um, I used to have really, really good conversations on there. Now I spend a lot more time talking about kind of current affairs and things on Twitter and making lots of jokes. I think that Twitter needs to do a huge amount to look at the abuse problem. They're not doing anything at the moment. But I think that's partly because we have ended up in a situation where we have these huge private companies who obviously have no real uh, no real aim other than to make money or if you Mark Zuckerberg hopefully become president. Um, so we have these big private companies that have ended up being a huge part of our life and obviously they then don't do anything to fully engage with the fact that so many people have, uh, you know, terrible times online. They facilitate a lot of abuse and, you know, looking at their part in radicalisation um, so I think I, I think I'm vaguely optimistic. I think people are talking about it a lot more. I worry that it will just be used as an opportunity for um, other people to try and clamp down on free speech. But equally, I think free speech has limits, and Twitter, Twitter, and Facebook, for instance, uh, aren't really fulfilling their duties. But I think most people I know have gotten more out of Twitter than actually had a horrible time. I think that it's one of those things where if ten people, you know, if you have 10 people in front of you, nine people tell you something they like about you. One person says they hate your hair. You'll spend all, you know, all day the following day thinking about how bad your hair is. Um, but most people I know have gotten a lot more out of it. I find it really helpful to work. Um, it's helped me connect with lots and lots of people I probably wouldn't have spoken to otherwise. Um, you know, lots and lots of things. And so I'm a little bit optimistic. I think that a lot of people are changing how they use it. So I've set up Twitter. So I only see mentions from people I follow and people who follow me. So. I'm sure people are abusing me. I don't see it anymore. I don't have to engage with it. And that really, really helps your headspace and lets you just focus on having productive conversations. So I think the fact they've put some of these things in are really helpful. Um, but I think it has helped to flatten some power structures. I think it's um, often when I speak to MPs, they're really annoyed about the fact that, that people had to, in, in the past had to write them a letter, whereas now they can send them a tweet. It used to be the case that an MP could say something in Parliament and report in the paper the next day. You would have to draw through the archives to find whether or not they were telling the truth. Um, so it's flattened a lot of those information networks. It's made it a lot easier to contact people. Obviously, that has drawbacks. Abuse is a huge problem, but... At the same time, I think it's quite democratising in many ways. And it's helped a lot of people feel a lot less alone. I know a lot of people who've had really, really big problems with like depression and mental health. And obviously for a lot of people, social media didn't help. But for some of them, if they're completely alone, all their friends are asleep, they can generally find someone to chat to. And that's really, really helpful for them. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sacred. We'd really love to know what you think. You can get in touch via Twitter, which is at sacred underscore podcast, or email us at thesacredpodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love to ask a favour. 
If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our Central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.